Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. It's a very apt time for Pinter to be here t- tonight. It is precisely 40 years ago that the room was staged in a converted squash court. It, it then cost four and sixpence the production, and the producer said it shouldn't have cost that much. I told the stage manager not to give the character of Bert real bacon and eggs except for one performance because we had no more money. But it went down very well and it was menacing and it was funny. Since then, Pinter has become part of the language. The influence of his plays, poems and other works has been remarkable. His works are now an essential part of the education for any school child studying English literature and will remain so. His ominous comedies with their eerie dialogues, signature silences and intense power struggles between characters in claustrophobically enclosed rooms or societies have enthralled audiences for four decades now. Born in London in 1930, Pinter has become a giant of our times. Um, He's about to direct a play in Italian and later in French this year. There are productions all around the world, in China, in South America, in Africa almost unknown a day when there is not a a pin to play on somewhere. Yet it has not always been easy to to assume that his path to success was going to be smooth. Um, He created a revolution in the theatre and revolutions, as we all know, are never easy. In the 50s, he wrote to the BBC and tried to persuade them that what he was writing was worth putting on. Um, John Arlott, one of the big Zars of, the, of, of culture in the BBC at the time wrote back, Dear Miss Pinner, sorry, we can't put your play on. <laughs> Frank Hauser, another executive, um, wrote, Dear Miss Pewter. You know, it wasn't going to happen. But Pinter is a realist and a pragmatist, and as well as a, a terrific writer and a man of the theatre who has changed the theatre, he's also a terrific campaigner. He has been phenomenally courageous in fighting injustice where he's seen it. He has published articles where he knows he's going to get flack for writing what he believes in. But it is fundamentally the theatre which he will be most in in people's minds here. And it is the difficulty of the theatre which he's always been very realistic about. He wrote in the 50s to his friend and producer and director Henry Wolfe who wrote to him saying, should I get into the theatre profession? And Pinter wrote back, what do you want to get into this shithouse for, this shithouse of a a profession? You'll meet very few people you want to have a drink with. Of course, it can be good. It can be gold and diamonds, of course. But there's also bags of the other stuff. I'm sure you'll agree, as we welcome him, he has produced a lot of gold and a lot of diamonds, and we're very delighted to have him here tonight. Thank you. Thank you, Geordie. I'm very... Um, incidentally, I've changed my mind about the theatre. I no longer consider it a shithouse. Um, it has been a golden place in my life, no question about that. Uh, I thank you very much for the great honour of the Sunday Times uh, Award. 
I'm uh, very touched by it indeed. I'd also like to say that um, I'm very pleased to be here on uh, giving the pen reading. Pen, as I'm sure most of you know, is a, a rather a remarkable organization worldwide um, dealing with the concerns and rights and in fact, in many cases, the fates of writers throughout the world with specific reference to um, censorship and torture. And as such, it, um, it performs a remarkable function. I'm very proud to be part of it. So I'm going to read um, some extracts from one or two of these plays. And um, I'm going to start with old times. I'm not at all sure that I'm going to get as many laughs as that fellow is over there, however. Um, old times. There are two characters here, Dealey and Anna. Uh, Dealey is married to a woman called Kate, and Anna is Kate's oldest friend who has come to see her after 20 years. Dealey. <coughs> like the room? Yes. We sleep here. These are beds. The great thing about these beds is that they are susceptible to any amount of permutation. They can be separated as they are now, or placed at right angles, or one can bisect the other, or you can sleep feet to feet, or head to head, or side by side. It's the casters that make all this possible. <laughs> yes, I remember you quite clearly from the Wayfarers. The what? The Wayfarer's Tavern, just off the Brompton Road. Uh, when was that? Years ago. I don't think so. Oh, yes, it was you, no question. I never forget a face. You sat in a corner quite often, sometimes alone, sometimes with others. And here you are, sitting in my house in the country. The same woman, incredible. A fellow called Luke used to go in there. You knew him. Luke, big chap, ginger hair, ginger beard. I don't honestly think so. Yes, a whole crowd of them. Poets, stuntmen, jockeys, stand-up comedians, that kind of setup. You used to wear a scarf, that's right, a black scarf and a black sweater. And a skirt. Me? And black stockings. Don't tell me you've forgotten the Wayfarer's Tavern. You might have forgotten the name, but you must remember the pub. You were the darling of the saloon bar. I wasn't rich, you know. I didn't have money for alcohol. You had escorts. You didn't have to pay. You were looked after. I bought you a few drinks myself. You. Sure. Never. It's the truth, I remember, clearly. You. I've bought you drinks. Twenty years ago or so. You're saying we've met before? Of course we've met before. We've talked before, in that pub, for example, in the corner. Luke didn't like it much, but we ignored him. Later, we all went to a party, someone's flat, somewhere in Westbourne Grove. You sat on a very low sofa. I sat opposite and looked up your skirt. Your black stockings were very black because your thighs were so white. That's something that's all over now, of course, isn't it? Nothing like the same 
palpable profit in it now. It's all over. But it was worthwhile then. It was worthwhile that night. I simply sat sipping my light ale and gazed, gazed up your skirt. You didn't object. You found my gaze perfectly acceptable. I was aware of your gaze, was I? There was a great argument going on about China or something, or death, or China and death, I can't remember which. But nobody but I had a thigh-kissing view. Nobody but you had the thighs which kissed. And here you are, same woman, same thighs. Yes. Then a friend of yours came in, a girl, a girlfriend. She sat on the sofa with you. You both chatted and chuckled, sitting together, and I settled lower to gaze at you both, at both your thighs, squealing and hissing. You aware, she unaware. But then a great multitude of men surrounded me and demanded my opinion about death or about China or whatever it was. And they would not let me be but bent down over me, so that what with their stinking breath and their broken teeth and the hair in their noses and China and death, and their asses on the arms of my chair, I was forced to get up and plunge my way through them, followed by them with ferocity, as if I were the cause of their argument. Looking back through smoke, rushing to the table with the linoleum cover to look for one more full bottle of light ale. Looking back through smoke, glimpsing two girls on the sofa, one of them you, heads close, whispering, no longer able to see anything, no longer able to see stocking or thigh and then you were gone I wandered over to the sofa there was no one on it I gazed at the indentations of four buttocks two of which were yours <laughs> I've rarely heard a sadder story I agree I'm terribly sorry well, that's all right. I never saw you again. You disappeared from the area. Perhaps you moved out. No, I didn't. I never saw you in the Wayfarer's Tavern again. Where were you? Oh, at concerts, I should think. Or the ballet. Katie's taking a long time over her bath. Well, you know what she's like when she gets in the bath. Yes. Enjoys it takes a long time over it. She does, yes. A hell of a long time. Luxuriates in it. Gives herself a great soaping all over. Really soaps herself all over. And then washes the soap off sud by sud. Meticulously. She's both thorough and, I must say it, sensuous gives herself a comprehensive going over, and apart from anything else, she does emerge as clean as a new pin, don't you think? Very clean. Truly so. Not a speck, not a tide mark, shiny as a balloon. Yes, a kind of... a kind of floating. What? She floats from the bath like a dream unaware of anyone standing with her towel waiting for her, waiting to wrap it round her, quite absorbed. 
until the towel is placed on her shoulders. Of course, she's so totally incompetent at drying herself properly. Did you find that? She gives herself a really good scrub, but can she, with the same efficiency, give herself an equally good rub? I have found in my experience of her that this is not in fact the case. You'll always find a few odd, unexpected, unwanted, cheeky globules dripping about. Why don't you dry her yourself? Now, would you recommend that? You do it properly. In her bath towel. How out? How out? How could you dry her out? Out of her bath towel. I don't know. Well, dry her yourself. In her bath towel. Why don't you dry her in her bath towel? Me. You do it properly. No, no. Surely. I mean, you're a woman. You know how and where and in what density moisture collects on women's bodies. No two women are the same. Well, that's true enough. I've got a brilliant idea. Why don't we do it with powder? Is that a brilliant idea? Isn't it? It's quite common to powder yourself after a bath. It's quite common to powder yourself after a bath, but it's quite uncommon to be powdered. <laughs> or is it? It's not common where I come from, I can tell you. My mother would have a fit. <laughs> Listen, I'll tell you what I'll do. it. I'll do the whole lot, the towel and the powder. After all, I am her husband. But you can supervise the whole thing. And give me some hot tips while you're at it. That'll kill two birds with one stone. Christ. You must be about 40, I should think, by now. If I walked into the Wayfarer's Tavern now and saw you sitting in the corner, I wouldn't recognize you. This is the, the homecoming, Lenny and Ruth. Lenny and Ruth have never met before. <coughs> Lenny. Do you mind if I hold your hand? Why? Just a touch. Just a tickle. Why? I'll tell you why. One night, not too long ago, one night down by the docks, I was standing alone under an arch, watching all the men jibbing the boon out in the harbour and playing about with the yardarm, when a certain lady came up to me and made me a certain proposal. This lady had been searching for me for days. She'd lost track of my whereabouts. However, the fact was she eventually caught up with me. And when she caught up with me, she made me this certain proposal. Well, this proposal wasn't entirely out of order, and normally I would have subscribed to it. 
I mean, I would have subscribed to it in the normal course of events. The only trouble was she was falling apart with the pox, so I turned it down. Well, this lady was very insistent, slightly taking liberties with me down under this arch, liberties which by any criterion I couldn't be expected to tolerate, the facts being what they were, so I clumped her one. It was on my mind at the time to do away with her, you know, to kill her. And the fact is that as killings go, it would have been a simple matter, nothing to it. A chauffeur who had located me for her, he'd uh, pop round the corner to have a drink. We've just left this lady and myself, you see, alone, standing underneath this arch, watching all the steamers steaming up, no one about, all quiet on the western front, and there she was up against this wall. Well, just sliding down the wall following the blow I'd given her. Well, to sum up, everything was in my favour for a killing. Don't worry about the chauffeur. The chauffeur would never have spoken. He was an old friend of the family. But in the end, I thought, ah, why go to all the bother? You know, getting rid of the corpse and all that. Getting yourself into a state of tension. So I just gave her another belt in the nose and a couple of turns of the boot and sort of left it at that. How did you know she was diseased? How did I know? I decided she was. You and my brother are newlyweds, are you? We've been married six years. He's always been my favourite brother, old Teddy. Do you know that? And my goodness, we are proud of him here, I can tell you. Doctor of philosophy and all that leaves quite an impression. Of course, he's a very sensitive man, isn't he? Ted, very. I've often wished I was as sensitive as he is. Have you? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, very much so. I mean, I'm not saying I'm not sensitive. I am. I could just be a bit more so, that's all. Could you? Oh, yeah, just a bit more so, that's all. I mean, I am very sensitive to atmosphere, but I tend to get desensitized, if you know what I mean, when people make unreasonable demands on me. For instance, last Christmas, I decided to do a bit of snow clearing for the Borough Council because we had a heavy snow over here that year in Europe. I didn't have to do this snow clearing. I mean, I wasn't financially embarrassed in any way. It just appealed to me. It appealed to something inside me. What I anticipated with a good deal of pleasure was the brisk cold bite in the air in the early morning, and I was right. I had to get my snow boots on, and I had to stand on a corner at about 5.30 in the morning to wait for the lorry to pick me up to take me to the allotted area. Bloody freezing. Well, the lorry came, I jumped on the tailboard, headlights on, dipped, and off we went. Got there, shovels up, fags on, and off we went, deep into the December snow, hours before cockcrow. Well, that morning, while I was having my mid-morning cup of tea in a neighbouring cafe, the shovel standing by my chair, an old lady approached me and asked me if I would give her a hand with her iron mangle. A brother-in-law, she said, had left it for her, but he left it in the wrong room. He'd left it in the front room. Well, naturally, she wanted it in the back room. It was a present he'd given her, you see, a, a mangle to iron out the washing. But he'd left it in the wrong room. He'd left it in the front room. Well, that was the silly place to leave it. It couldn't stay there. So I took time off to give her a hand. She only lived up the road. Well, the only trouble was, when I got there, I couldn't move this mangle. It must have weighed about half a tonne. How this brother-in-law got it up there in the first place, I can't even begin to envisage. 
So there I was doing a bit of shoulders on with the mangle, risking a rupture, and this old lady just standing there, waving me on, not even lifting a little finger to give me a helping hand. So after a few minutes, I said to her, now look here, why don't you stuff this iron mangle up your ass?" <laughs> anyway, I said, they're out of date, you want to get a spin dryer? <laughs> I had a good mind to give her a work over there and then. But as I was feeling jubilant with the snow clearing, I just gave her a short arm jab to the belly and jumped on a bus outside. <laughs> Excuse me, shall I take this ashtray out of your way? It's not in my way. Well, it seems to be in the way of your glass. The glass was about to fall. Or the ashtray. I'm rather worried about the carpet. It's not me, it's my father. He's obsessed with order and clarity. He doesn't like mess. So, um... As I don't believe you're smoking at the moment, I'm sure you won't object if I move the ashtray. And now, perhaps, I'll relieve you of your glass. I haven't quite finished. You've consumed quite enough, in my opinion. No, I haven't. Quite sufficient, in my own opinion. Not in mine, Leonard. Don't call me that, please. Why not? That's the name my mother gave me. Just give me the glass. No. I'll take it then. If you take the glass, I'll take you. How about me taking the glass without you taking me? Why don't I just take you? You're joking. You're in love anyway with another man. You've had a secret liaison with another man his family didn't even know. Then you come here without a word of warning and start to make trouble. Have a sip. Go on. Have a sip from my glass. Sit on my lap. Take a long, cool sip. Put your head back and open your mouth. Take that glass away from me. Lie on the floor. Go on. I'll pour it down your throat. What are you doing, making me some kind of proposal? Oh, I was thirsty. What was that supposed to be? Some kind of proposal? Betrayal. <coughs> Robert and Emma are married and they're in a hotel in Venice on holiday. Robert. By the way, I went into American Express yesterday. Oh? 
Yes, I went to cash some traveller's cheques. You get a much better rate there, you see, than you do in a hotel. Oh, oh, do you? Oh, yeah. Anyway, there was a letter there for you. They asked me if you were, um, if you were any relation, and I said yes. So they asked me if I wanted to take it. I mean, they gave it to me. But I said no, I would leave it. Did you get it? Yes. I suppose you popped in when you were out shopping yesterday evening. That's right. Oh, well, I'm glad you got it. To be honest, I was amazed that they suggested I take it. It could never happen in England. But these Italians, so free and easy. I mean, just because my name is Downs and your name is Downs doesn't mean that we're the Mr. and Mrs. Downs that they, in their laughing Mediterranean way, assume we are. We could be, and in fact are, are vastly more likely to be uh, total strangers. So let's say I, whom they laughingly assume to be your husband, had taken the letter, having declared myself to be your husband, but in truth being a total stranger, and opened it and read it out of nothing more than idle curiosity and then thrown it in a canal you would never have received it and would have been deprived of your legal right to open your own mail. And all this because of Venetian je m'en foutisme. I have a good mind to write to the Doge of Venice about it. That's what stopped me taking it, by the way, and bringing it to you. The thought that I could very easily be a total stranger. What they, of course, did not know and had no way of knowing was that I am your husband. Pretty inefficient bunch. Only in a laughing Mediterranean way. It was from Jerry. Yes, I recognize the handwriting. How is he? Okay. Good. And Judith? Fine. What about the kids? I don't think he mentioned them. Well, they're probably all right then. If they were ill or something, he'd have probably mentioned it. Any other news? No. Are you looking forward to Torcello? How many times have we been to Torcello? Twice. I remember how you loved it the first time I took you there. You fell in love with it. That was about ten years ago, wasn't it? About six months after we were married. Yes. Do you remember? I wonder if you'll like it as much tomorrow. What do you think of Jerry as a letter writer? Huh. You're trembling. Are you cold? He used to write to me at one time, long letters about Ford, Maddox Ford. I used to write to him too, come to think of it, long letters about, oh, W.B. Yeats, I suppose. That was the time when we were both editors of poetry magazines, him at Cambridge, me at Oxford. Did you know that? We were bright young men and close friends. Well, we still are close friends. Well, that was long before I met you, long before he met you. I've been trying to remember when I introduced him to you. I simply can't remember. I take it I did introduce him to you? Yes, but when? 
Can you remember? No. You can't? No. How odd. He wasn't best man at our wedding, was he? You know he was. Ah, yes. Well, that's probably when I introduced him to you. Was there any message for me in his letter? I mean, in the line of business to do with the world of publishing. Has he discovered any new and original talent? He's quite talented at uncovering talent, old Jerry. No message. No message. Not even his love. We're lovers. Ah, yes. I thought it might be something like that. Something along those lines. When? What? When did you think? Yesterday, only yesterday, when I saw his handwriting on the letter. Before yesterday, I was quite ignorant. Ah. I'm sorry. Sorry. When does it, uh, when does it take place? Must be a bit awkward. I mean, we've got two kids, he's got two kids, not to mention a wife. We have a flat. Ah, I see. Nice? A flat. <clears throat> it's quite well established then, your, um, your uh, affair. Yes. How long? Some time. Yes, but how long exactly? Five years. Five years. Ned is one year old. Did you hear what I said? Yes, he's your son. Jerry was in America for two months. Did he write to you from America? Of course, and I wrote to him. Did you tell him that Ned had been conceived? Not by letter, but when you did tell him, was he happy to know I was to be a father? I've always liked Jerry. To be honest, I've always liked him rather more than I've liked you. Maybe I should have had an affair with him myself. Tell me, are you looking forward to our trip to Torcello? The caretaker. Mick and Davis. Davis. Stink! You hear that? Me. I told you what he said, didn't I? Stink! You hear that? That's what he said to me. That's what he said to me. You don't stink? No, sir. 
If you stank, I'll be the first one to tell you. I told him, I told him, he, I said to him, you, you ain't heard the last of this, man. I said, don't you forget your brother. I told him you'd be coming along to sort him out. He don't know what he started doing that, doing that to me. I said to him, I said to him, he'll be along, your brother will be along. He's got sense, not like you. What do you mean? Eh? You say my brother hasn't got any sense? What? What I'm saying is you've got ideas for this place, all this, all this decorating, see? I mean, he's got no right to order me about. I take orders from you. I do my caretaking for you. I mean, you look upon me, you, you don't treat me like a lump of dirt. We can, we can both, we can both see him for what he is. What did he say then when you told him I'd offered you the job as caretaker? He, uh, he said, uh, he said uh, something about he lived here. Yeah, he's got a point, didn't he? A point. This is your house, isn't it? You let him live here. I could tell him to go, I suppose. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, I could tell him to go. I mean, I'm the landlord. On the other hand, he's the sitting tenant. Giving him notice, you see, what it is, it's a technical matter. That's what it is. It depends how you regard this room. I mean, it depends whether you regard this room as furnished or unfurnished. See what I mean? No, I don't. All this furniture you see in here, it's all his, except the bed, of course. So, uh, so what it is, it's a fine legal point. That's what it is. I tell you, he should go back where he come from. Come from? Yeah. Where did he come from? Well, he, uh, he, uh, he, uh, you get a bit out of your depth sometimes, don't you? Well, anyway, as things stand, I don't mind having a go at doing up the place. That's what I want you to hear. No, I don't mind. But you better be as good as you say you are. What do you mean? Well, you say you're an interior decorator. You better be a good one. A what? What do you mean a what? A decorator. An interior decorator. Me? What do you mean? I never touched that. I've never been that. You never what? No, no, not me, man. I'm, a, I'm not an interior decorator. I've been too busy. Too many other things to do, you see. But I, uh, I could always turn my hand to most things. Give me, a, give me a bit of time to pick it up. I don't want you to pick it up. I'm a first-class, experienced interior decorator. I thought you were one. Me? Now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You've you got the wrong man. How can I have the wrong man? You're the only man I've spoken to. You're the only man I've told about my dreams, about my deepest wishes. You're the only one I've told. And I only told you because I understood you were an experienced, first-class, professional, interior and exterior decorator. Now, look here. You mean you wouldn't know how to fit teal, blue, copper and parchment and linoleum squares and have those colours re-echoed in the walls? Now, look here. Where'd you get... You wouldn't be able to decorate out a table in Aphromosia teak veneer, an armchair in oatmeal tweed, and a beach frame settee with a woven seagrass seat? I never said that. Christ, I must have been under a false impression. I never said it. You're a bloody imposter, mate. Now, you, you would have... You don't want to start saying that sort of thing to me. You, you took me on here as caretaker. I was going to give you a helping hand, that's all, for a, small, for a small wage. I never said nothing about that. You start calling me names. What is your name? Oh, don't start that. No, what's your real name? My real name's Davis. What's the name you go under? Jenkins. You've got two names. What about the rest, eh? Ah, oh, come on. Why did you tell me all this dirt about you being an interior decorator? I didn't tell you nothing. Won't you listen to what I'm saying? 
It was him who told you. It was your brother who must have told you. He's nutty. He'd tell you anything out of spite. He's nutty. He's halfway gone. It was him who told you. What did you call my brother? When? He's what? I, no, no, now get this straight. Nutty. Who's nutty? Did you call my brother nutty? My brother? That's a bit of a, that's a bit of an impertinent thing to say, isn't it? But he says so himself. What a strange man you are, aren't you? You're really strange. Ever since you come into this house, there's been nothing but trouble, honest. I can take nothing you say at face value. Every word you speak is open to any number of different interpretations. Most of what you say is lies. You're violent, you're erratic, you're just completely unpredictable. You're nothing else but a wild animal when you come down to it. You're a barbarian. And to put the old tin lid on it, you stink from our salt to breakfast time. Look at it. You come here recommending yourself as an interior decorator, whereupon I take you on, and what happens? You make a long speech about all the references you've got down at Sick Cup, and what happens? I haven't noticed you go down to Sick Cup to attain them. It's almost regrettable, but it looks as though I'm compelled to pay you off for your caretaking work. Here's half a dollar. Mick walks to the gas stove and picks up the statue of Buddha. Davis. All right, then. You do that. You do it, if that's what you want. That's what I want! Anyone would think this house was all I've got to worry about. I've got other, plenty of other things I can worry about. I've got other things. I've got plenty of other interests. I've got my own business to build up, haven't I? I've got to think about expanding in all directions. I don't stand still. I'm moving about all the time. I'm moving all the time. I've got to think about the future. I'm not worried about this house. I'm not interested. My brother can worry about it. He can do it up. He can decorate it. He can do what he likes with it. I'm not bothered. I thought I was doing him a favour, letting him live here. He's got his own ideas. Let him have them. I'm going to chuck it in. What about me? When did you meet your husband? When I was 18. Why? 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 I just met him. Why? I didn't plan it. Why not? I didn't know him. Why not? Why not? I didn't know him. Why not? I met him. When? When I was 18. Why? He was in the room. Room? Room? The same room. 
As what? As I was. As I was? As I was! Room? What room? A room. What room? My father's room. Your father? What's your father got to do with it? Your father? How dare you? Fuck pig. Your father was a wonderful man. His country is proud of him. He's dead. He was a man of honor. He's dead. Are you prepared to insult the memory of your father? Are you prepared to defame, to debase the memory of your father? Your father fought for his country. I knew him. I revered him. Everyone did. He believed in God. He didn't think like you shitbags. He lived. He lived. He was iron and gold. He would die, he would die, he would die for his country, for his God. And he did die. He died, he died for his God. You turd, to spawn such a daughter. What a fate. Oh, poor perturbed spirit, to be haunted forever by such scum and spittle. How do you dare speak of your father to me? I loved him as if he were my own father. Where did you meet your husband? In a street. What were you doing there? Walking. What was he doing? Walking. I dropped something. He picked it up. What did you drop? The evening paper. You were drunk. You were drugged. You had absconded from your hospital. I was not in a hospital. Where are you now? Where are you now? Do you think you're in a hospital? Do you think we have nuns upstairs? What do we have upstairs? No nuns. What do we have? Men. Have they been raping you? How many times? How many times have you been raped? How many times? This is my big finger, and this is my little finger. Look, I wave them in front of your eyes like this. How many times have you been raped? I don't know. And you consider yourself a reliable witness? You're a lovely woman. Well, you were. Your son is uh, seven. He's a little prick. You made him so. You've taught him to be so. You had a choice. You could have encouraged him to be a good person. In instead, you encouraged him to be a little prick. You encouraged him to spit, to strike at soldiers of honor, soldiers of God. Oh, well, I, in one way, I suppose it's academic. You're of no interest to me. I might even let you out of here in due course. Well, I should think you might entertain us all a little more before you go. And lastly, um, Moonlight. Andy and Belle. Andy is dying. 
Where is she? Of all the people in the world, I know she'd want to be with me now because she, I know, remembers everything. How I cuddled her and sang to her, how I kept her nightmares from her, how she fell asleep in my arms. Please, oh please. Is she bringing my grandchildren to see me, is she? To catch their last look of me, to receive my blessing? Poor little buggers, their eyes so wide, so blue, so black. Poor tots, tiny totlets, poor little tiny totlets to lose their granddad at the height of his powers when he was about to stumble upon new reserves of spiritual zest, when the door was about to open on new, ever-widening and ever-lengthening horizons. But, darling, death will be your new horizon. What? Death is your new horizon. That may be, that may be. But the big question is, will I cross it as I die or after I'm dead? Or perhaps I won't cross it at all. Perhaps I'll just stay stuck in the middle of the horizon. In which case, can I see over it? Can I see to the other side? Or is the horizon endless? And what's the weather like? Is it uncertain with showers or sunny with fog patches? Or unceasing moonlight with no cloud? Or pitch black forever and ever? You may say you haven't the faintest fucking idea and you would be right. But personally, I don't believe it's going to be pitch black forever because if it's pitch black forever, what would have been the point of going through all these enervating charades in the first place? There must be a loophole. The only trouble is I can't find it. If only I could find it, I could crawl through it and meet myself coming back, like screaming with fright at the sight of a stranger, only to find you looking into a mirror. But what if I cross this horizon before my grandchildren get here, they won't know where I am. What will they say? Would you ever tell me? Would you ever tell me what they say? They'll cry or they won't, a sorrow too deep for tears, but they're only babies. What can they know about death? Oh, the really little ones, I think, do know something about death. They know more about death than we do. We've forgotten death, but they haven't forgotten it they remember it because some of them, those who are really very young, remember the moment before their life began. It's not such a long time ago for them, you see. And the moment before their life began, they were, of course, dead. Really. Of course. Thank you. reading we do have some time for some questions and for some discussion and Harold Pinter has kindly agreed to sign some copies of his books which are in the bookshop afterwards so I thought I'd just start the ball rolling and then go straight to the audience as soon as possible because I'm sure some of you have some questions there seems such an assurance the way you create such a these tense atmospheres I mean even with Cullis your work you wrote when you were 19 we had these tense spaces, these territorial battles, was it always something which was waiting to come out, which you felt you had to write? 
was, was what? Was that sort of intense confrontation and that, co that, that these conflictual incidents? Well, I mean, the truth is that I've never really analyzed mm. what I do, and um, um, I, I have no... Uh, other people are much more adept and uh, doing that. Because you've talked to before as, as a child how you used to hear sort of threatening conversations under the local railway arches, you know, I'm all right, you're all right. Does that echo that your past has sort of cr built up this creation of dialogue? And as new, you're an only child, where you just used to, in, I think, you, again, you've spoken before of having dialogues in your mind. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I was brought up in the war, uh, you know. <coughs> I was an uh, adolescent in the war. Yeah. <coughs> Therefore, I was brought up in a very, very violent world. And um, also, family life wasn't particularly, uh, you know, soft either. Uh, my father worked very, very hard, and he was a very short-tempered man because he worked so hard. He's still, he's 95, but he's not quite so short-tempered now. <laughs> um, but um, we, I think I'm not, I don't believe I'm alone in finding the world uh, tough and dangerous and threatening and sort of extremely uncertain. I mean, as a, I was, as a boy, I, um, I mean, I was a conscientious objector at the age of 18 because I saw another, another war just about to begin, you know, and I refused to have it refused to have anything to do with it. Um, I'm just going to get myself a glass of water. So I was um, aware of tremendous pressures, you know, all over the place of one kind or another. But as I say, I'm hardly alone in that, I would imagine, if you were part of the Second World War, you know. Although it was quite a sort of um, a brave stance in, at that time to be a conscientious objector. It was straight after the war when there were great pressures to sort of conform in that way. There were, yes. There were great pressures to just uh, have another, another world war. That's what yeah. the position was. And um, as a boy, I made a kind of... Uh, just said, like, cut me out. That's all. Yeah. And... Um, was writing a sort of release, to a, a way to try and... Because you are a great campaigner for what you, what you see as injustices and to try and rid the world of things which go wrong. Well... I, I try to f uh, fulfil my obligations as a citizen, of the, as a citizen. You know, that's mm -hmm. what I try to do. I think, in a way, I always uh, did do that. As a matter of fact, when I was 18, mm -hmm. which is a bloody long time ago now, I mm -hmm. was indeed uh, a, a conscientious objector and realised it was very unpopular at the time. My parents were extremely worried by that, and um, nobody liked me very much. But I stuck to my guns, and um, I realised that you had to. Uh, <laughs> 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 yes. Well, that's absolutely right. <laughs> there might, might be a good note to broaden the conversation. To, if, if there are any questions, can you put your, put your hand up and we will send someone with a microphone to see you. The man in the coloured... Or with a gun. Yeah. <laughs> can, can you speak up? Sorry, we can't hear the moment. Is there a play you've got particular satisfaction from? Well, I really actually have quite an affection for all of them, as a matter of fact. <laughs> um, I, uh, I think the very last one I did, which I didn't read anything uh, from today, Ashes to Ashes, uh, I'm very, very happy with. I think it does what, it, what I hoped it would, you know. But as for um, some of the others, I mean, I think that um, The Homecoming is a pretty tight play, and I, I do like... Um, 
tight place. Well, I mean, I don't, I don't, I, I really have remained a very uh, concerned about how to uh, not to waste words, you know, and try to express um, depths of emotion or action with the least possible uh, exertion of, of, of language. I mean, in other words, to encapsulate within a very tight uh, body of language um, a great deal. Uh, because one could go on and on and on. I think we find ourselves just uh, wrapped round and uh, assaulted, really, uh, most of the time by a, great, uh, by a, uh, a whole body, a tapestry of language, which actually is pretty meaningless, you know, and is actually uh, masquerading, uh, actually hiding the, the truth from the... In other words, it's not communicating. And I, I try to deal with images, I think, of, um, which are hard and true and uh, to the point. Flaubert talked about combing down language. Is that what happens when you're writing, you pare down and pare down? Is it quite a process of elimination? I think I do, and I, and, and, but uh, over the last 10 years, I think I've been, there's nothing to, almost nothing to pare down, really. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> by which I mean that uh, in, the, in the act of writing, I'm paring down as I write, Yes. rather than having to pare down in the second draft or anything like that. My last few plays, have, I've had very little. I've more or less written them straight off, you know. In the front, here we are. It seems to me in your work the pauses are very powerful. Would you agree that they're almost as important as the dialogue? Well, my wife, whom I think is here at the moment, and I hope she's here, um, once said that my pauses were actually the curse of, could be defined as the curse of Pinter. <laughs> and I really tend to agree. I, I think that um, when I first wrote the word pause in about 1957, uh, it set me off on a, a course which I've ne never really recovered because um, uh, people, as you, as you have just done yourself, talk more about the forces than about what happens between the forces. <laughs> and um, the forces for me were always supposed to be perfectly natural things. You know, we do pause as we speak, and we pause for various lengths of time depending on what's happening at the time and what we, if we've got nothing else to say or we are, are, are fearful of saying whatever it is or uncertain and so on and so on. In other words, pauses are quite natural things, but unfortunately in my case they have become they've tended to become in um, people's minds, and a lot of critics, I think, too, rather rigid, you know, and formal structures, which I never intended. Although you, you wrote once that it was, um, you talk about the formation of character and images, and you talk about whether the characters are silent or, and in hiding, and you say it is mm. in the silence they are most evident to me. What well, you, you know, that's the that? kind of thing I wrote about 40 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> You changed your mind. I remember when I recently did this, um, I don't know whether anyone saw this face-to-face -face with Jeremy Isaacs on the television. The first, he confounded me straight away. He, it was, um, I was clean bold first ball, really, because he said to me, we are sitting as two members of a pinter play in silence, and what is behind the silence? I had no idea what he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's not going to happen yeah. here tonight. <laughs> Can we break the silence with another question? In the middle of the lady of the hand up, you put your hand right up. Anyone want else to put their hand up, then we can get the microphone also in, in line to them. OK, 
Can the other microphone come over here? Sorry, a, a Pinterest pause there. I'd like to know from you how you cope with pictures we've seen recently on television um, in Africa where you see inhumanity or rather humanity on such a large scale, loads of corpses and people just killing each other, which we've had before many times. Well, I'm, you know, when you ask me how I cope, I think it's a question that really applies to every member of this audience. How do we cope? Um, it's um, the burden of such horror is uh, very, very difficult to live with. And I think what um, does tend to happen is that governments, particularly, um, and the media, uh, give it a sort of cursory attention and, and then simply go away from it. And um, many, mainly because, in, in many respects, the governments of the Western world, for example, are, and the international um, financial, ins financial institutions are actually responsible for all this. Um, that is, it seems to me to be the point. But we simply talk about the wonderful, clean uh, uh, democracies we live in and um, pay no attention to what the actual effects of, what we, of our actions are throughout the world. This I could go on at great length, but I won't. But that, I think, is... And so I find that as horrific as the, horror, as the horror itself, our own responsibility for what we're looking at. Lady in the black shirt. Uh, I write and only want to write for the theatre. Do you think I'm mad? Ah, it's a great experience. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think one of the... I find, actually, the, the theatre on the whole, a, a pretty civilised activity, given what we've just been talking about. And um, also, uh, um, it is, uh, it's also a responsible activity. I mean, at its very best, people do want to communicate and, uh, um, and try to... There's a kind of mutual illumination going on at its best. So I think it's a worthwhile thing. And um, I've had a... So I, was, I would recommend it. But I've had a great experience. I've been writing, as Geordie said, my first play that I wrote in 1957, in fact. I've forgotten that. Well, that is, in fact, 40 years ago. And um, it's been very much the pulse of my life, the bloodstream of my life. So um, go for it. <laughs> Gentleman in the blue shirt. Uh, you were talking earlier about the homecoming and being quite happy with that. Uh, where does the satisfaction come? Does it come on paper, on the first night, win the ward? I mean, where does the... Nothing to do with the wards, no. So where... Is it uh, the first night? No, no, it's the shape of the thing on the, on the page and in performance, I mean, of yeah, course. Can you, can you see that on page, or does it have to be when it's on stage? Well, you can, you can suspect it on the page, but it's, it's confirmed on the stage, yes. Um, yes. Lady in the middle, right in the middle. Tell us something about PEN. Um, is, is it connected with Censor? I think the organisation which um, uh, publishes um, works of people banned in their own countries. Are the two things connected and, and what do you achieve by PEN? Well, PEN, as I said briefly, is um, an international, it's the one uh, international organisation of writers. And it does um, take care of, or pay attention to what happens to writers all over the world. Um, not simply in their where they're deprived of voices, but also where they possess voices. And they always possess voices, as you know, uh, even when they're deprived. 
Um, so a great deal of Penn does go into the um, uh, really pretty vigilant scrutiny of what happens to um, writers who speak out and how censorship actually operates and um, how writers are persecuted. Uh, so it's a very, it's a very important uh, organization. And it's really um, got about 130 um, uh, member states, if you see what I mean. So it's a, uh, of writers. On the right, there's some mm. lady right in the back over there. Oh, gentlemen, member, gentlemen. Can I ask you, um, when you write a play or a piece, whether you um, aim to present a meaning every time, or whether it's just to present a situation? Could, because I uh, worked in the dwarfs, and we were always constantly looking for the meaning, what's meant each time, and. Whether it, whether it was just a situation and nothing more than that. Well, you know, um, this word meaning is a, a very <laughs> tricky one. Um, every state of affairs possesses its, possesses its own um, logic and its own truth and its own uh, something being determined within it, any situation. Um, but to define it with, uh, to categorize it with a kind of meaning um, is, I think, to it almost, almost invariably to simplify, if not falsify, if not distort the, the, the situation itself. I mean, human life, as you, you must know as well as I do, is extremely complex. And um, to say this such and such a thing means such, uh, th why don't you leave that to politicians? I don't think um, that uh, dramatists or poets um, I don't think it's our business to say. And therefore, I, if you had a meaning, you just put it up on a poster and say, that's it. This is the meaning. Don't bother to see the play. Over here. I was reminded of the work of the American playwright David Mamet. I was wondering whether you were familiar with his work and what you thought of it. I am indeed familiar with his work. I'm very familiar with his work. I've actually directed one of his plays um, in London. The, I did the London premiere of Oleana, and he dedicated his um, play Glengarry Glen Ross to me, I have to tell you. So, um, <laughs> so he's familiar with my work too. That's what it comes out of. <laughs> <laughs> we have a time for a couple more questions. There's over here, the lady in the scarf. Jordy uh, was saying earlier on that this is, you've been, they've been trying to persuade you to come to Hay for 10 years. What made you decide to come this year? I couldn't resist it. <laughs> I knew I'd meet a lady with a scarf. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you later. <laughs> Didn't hear it. Well, fi final question on the right. Um, you, I was wondering what, what you felt about uh, your own experience with screenwriting and you've, you've done a, a great many screenplays and uh, I'm familiar with a few of them in particular um, one that struck me w was Reunion where um, I thought that you completely transformed the novella that you'd based the screenplay on and I wondered did you find anything out from writing from extant material that you maybe you would not have encountered in dealing with something that came from yourself. Mm. 
Well, I'm very, um, I'm extremely glad you like Reunion. It's a film that hasn't been seen very much. I don't know what the distributors did with it. Um, but they certainly hid it from view apart from you. I'm very, very glad. <laughs> it's a very, very uh, delicate and um, it's an excellent uh, piece of work. I've had a, a very fortunate uh, career in films. I've written about 22 screenplays and I've had some mar marvelous relations, professional relationships with some wonderful directors. And I've been given a, a totally free hand and... Um, I haven't been censored in any way, and so on. So I've, uh, I've enjoyed my career very much. In, in, I've, I've never written an original for some uh, odd reason. I have no idea why. But I, um, the, all my original ideas have gone into films, into plays. But I have um, really enjoyed the... I do really enjoy the craft of uh, adapting novels for the, for the screen. It's a very, very interesting um, thing altogether. And it's been quite rare, the success you've had going to the Hollywood machine, which, isn't it, where there have been people get rejected left, right, and center despite producing brilliant screenplays. You, you had a, almost an unprecedented success in getting your films made. Well, I have to confess that I did. I think I have broken one record, and that is I've had, um, out of about 20 screenplays, I think 17 of my screenplays have been performed uh, or filmed as written, which is, um, I think, a bit uh, rather unusual. Well, the average, I think, in Hollywood is you write 17 mm. films and they never get made at all. So on that note, can we just thank Harold Pinto very much indeed. <laughs> Fantastic, Harold.